Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 169 with my guest and composer, Rob Honstein. Uh, Rob, I met at Princeton. He lives in Princeton, and I met him through SOCI, actually, uh, but he also teaches at NYU, where we've crossed paths several times. He's an amazing composer. He's written for SOCI before, but he also, uh, what struck me about Rob is a piece he wrote for Doug Perkins, which was a vibraphone solo, which sounded like it may as well have been a quartet. Um... But uh, my friend Doug played it masterfully, and I wanted to talk to Rob a little bit about his process, his background, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, Rob's a great guy. I hope you enjoyed chatting with him. I certainly did. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Rob Honstein. Talk to you soon. Bye. He was the eternal optimist. He was always like, if I were any better, there'd be two of me. (laughs) Yeah. Some people might feel like less of me would be better, though. Oh, I don't know about that, Rob. Uh, okay, I think we're good. Let me just turn it down a little bit there. Okay. Sorry, this is, had my rig all set up for, I had to overdub some synth right before we chatted. Oh, um, okay. exciting. Yeah. I'm, it was yeah. exciting if I was getting it done on time and it was good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's exciting to have cre- active creative projects in the works. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Well, okay, all right, let me just make sure I got my shit together here. Let me turn off my AC. And, all yeah, right. I, did, I did the same thing. I, I closed the door, which, like, the AC is in the other... I'm in my attic, and the AC is in the other room, oh, but no. I closed the door to minimize the noise. Uh-oh. But it means as the course of the... As the conversation goes on, I'm going to become hotter and hotter. Me too, so this which, is going to be great. We're, we're yeah. going to lose a, lose, a, lose a couple LBs while we're talking here. Um, yeah. All right. Well, Rob, we're, we're rolling here. Let me let's gavel this to order. Um, bef- welcome yeah. to my podcast. I appreciate this. We've been sort of um, talking shit about doing this for what seems like a decade now, but I don't think we've known each other that long. But it seems no, like a while. <laughs> I, I was thinking about. I think it's been a, a year. I think or it could have been two, but I think it's a year because I remember we first talked about it when I saw you at Sosi at the. The tap room. That's right. After, that's right. Afterwards, yeah. But I can't remember if that was last summer or two years ago. It would have been. I think my memory serves that we we hung at Sosi, and then the following fall, um, you were teaching at NYU. Right. And oh, I, so maybe it was two years ago then. And it was, I've been at NYU. Yeah. The steel band played at the opening rally thing, and you came up. And oh. Like, and uh, we started talking. Anyway, well, I'm glad we could do this. And yeah. before we get any further, I want to admit something to you. I don't know how to correctly pronounce your last name, and I would love for you oh. to say it out loud. No, 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 no worries. Um, Steen, Hanstein. Hanstein. Let me just, yeah. I've heard a million different versions, and I know oh, there's, yeah. there's arguments in the uh, uh, in the world how to, if it's, it's Steen, if it's E-I-N, and it's Stein, if it's I-E-N, um, you know, but yeah. I've, I've seen it a million different ways, so Hanstein, I appreciate you clarifying yeah. that for me. Yeah, I, no problem. My n- names are the worst for me, and... Um, so anyway, I didn't want to say it wrong. Well, Rob Honstein, I'm really grateful for you doing this. And, um, you know, I think a lot of my SOCI students and colleagues, younger colleagues of mine who have commissioned you and worked with you. And of course, I know about your music through just because we cross paths a lot. But um, I kind of want to get to know you as a, just a, as a person and a composer. I like doing these um, podcasts and I don't have an agenda necessarily other than just to start with like Baby Rob. Take me to Baby yeah. Rob and take you know as quickly as you can. Well, not as quickly, but as as thoughtfully as you want to be with Baby Rob to current time. Um, yeah. Just to give us a little sense of where you came from and why you do the things you do, that'd be great. And then along the way, if we diverge and go various places, all good. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a lot. So it's um, 
You know, I started, I guess I'll do the music narrative because I think that's why we're talking, but maybe there's other parts of the narrative. Well, let me, let me say, I, I like talking to people and it doesn't have to be about music. You're a person first and foremost. And if we can just talk as people, if we talk about music, cause that's what we have a lot in common with, then we can go there. Yeah, yeah, true. Okay. Yeah. So I was born, uh, in the, in the decade of 1980, I was born in 1980 and, um, I grew up in, um, mostly in Princeton, New Jersey, although mm-hmm. I, I was in Pittsburgh when I was under five, but I don't remember that at all. And um, I've been doing music since probably around, yeah, five or so. My parents started me on piano. I did that. They did, um, you know, classically stuff like uh, Suzuki and Mm -hmm. other classical stuff. And then I always did music in school, choir, and... Did you um, play violin? No, no, I didn't do violin. Okay. Um, You said Suzuki, Uh, and I just assumed because I know it's so closely related to... but they have a Suzuki... um, um, piano oh, thing okay. as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Do anyway, they start so, you off at a really tiny piano? <laughs> that's funny. No, <laughs> that's a good joke. Yeah, no, uh, very specific for anyone who does Suzuki. Yeah, stories. that's a that's an inside that baseball joke. joke there. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, regular size piano. Um, and so that was sort of my musical world for you know most of my upbringing. But you know, I did. I just I think I had just a pretty standard suburb upbringing. You know, doing like various sports and music and you know, pretty straightforward. And then I guess I um, kept, you know, the, the way I felt about it was music was like the one thing that kept me, that I kept coming back to. Like mm. I always was drawn to it, you know, maybe I stopped doing one thing or another thing, but it just always stuck with me. And then around the start of high school, I guess I kind of had my opening up moment because I had a real falling out with the piano teacher. It was mm. getting a little intense. She was sort of pushing me to do things I didn't want to do, like, through competitions. And, oh, yeah. I mean, I, lo- I loved it, but I just didn't want to do that. And so there was, I remember a very explosive moment where I, I literally stormed out of the lesson. I don't think I've ever done anything like this since, <laughs> but I, I screamed at her. I was like, I had, a, I don't remember what I said, but I was screaming and I had enough and I just walked out and I just waited for my mom to come pick me That's up. That's amazing. You know, on the I wish I had, I don't have a like storm out moment in my life. Maybe that, I don't know what that says about me. Maybe I'm just, I don't, yeah. I don't stand up to authority when I should or what, but I, I just have never stormed out. I think but, I had a moment with a teacher in grad school, but it didn't really happen until yeah. I was like 25 where he looked me in the face. Bob Van Sysen was like, yeah, you know, you're never going to play in an orchestra, right? <laughs> right, right <laughs> and right, I said, right, right. he was like, you're going to play backyard parties or you're going to take timpani auditions. Which is it going to be? And I was like, well, I'm going to play backyard parties. And he said, okay, good. Yeah. I'm glad we had this chat, <laughs> but it wasn't like, a storm out I, and walk out moment, you know? You know, because I'm a fan of your podcast, I've heard you tell the story already. Sorry, um, <laughs> sorry. No, no, it's fine. I have, I have like um, four stories and I tell them over and over yeah, and over. No, it's great. You're, you're a good storyteller, Josh. I think it, work, it works for you. Um, but that's the way I heard that story, though. It's not so much, it didn't sound like you were going to storm, you're going to blow up at him. It sounds like it ended up being a positive sort of revelation, like you figured something out. Or maybe well, that's just I was the back, like, you know. You're, the way you tell it now, 2020, but maybe in the moment you were really pissed. I in the know. moment, I think I was really pissed but i also was i mean again like i'm just to, to clarify like you were how old when this happened for you to you like 13 13 14, i was I 25 24 25 okay. so like my head was my prefrontal cortex was a little more formed to be able to deal with that sort of criticism so it, yeah, while it yeah, knocked yeah, me back totally. on my heels i was a little bit like well he's not wrong you know right i, right, right, I right. do play more backyard parties than i study beethoven one that's two, true and that sounds that's like that's like a way more positive way to deal with it than i did which I think was, I felt like a total failure. Like, mm. I feel like I was just like, 
oh, I couldn't do this thing that I was being pushed to do. I guess I'm terrible at it. Mm-hmm. Was sort of the mm-hmm. way I interpreted it. But the thing is, it, it didn't end music for me. It actually just set me in a different direction, which I'm grateful for because I think it set me up for where I am now, yeah. which is that, you know, I kind of quit the classical piano thing, and even though it was kind of all I knew, and I tried other things. You know, I, I tried, I was playing in like a rock band. Mm. I started getting into jazz, um, and it just it kind of opened up my, my world. And it was actually probably in hindsight the best thing because there was a couple years in there where I didn't really have any lessons or any kind of teacher um and I guess it allowed me to figure some things out for myself and but but I guess you know when you spend um I guess the formative years of your life playing a certain type of music which was for me classical music inevitably I came back to it because by the end of high school I was interested in it again but in a totally different way Mm. I'd been getting into jazz and doing a lot of that stuff, which sort of got me into more like experimental music. And I guess through that route, I kind of was like interested and started getting interested in more like avant-garde classical or whatever. Mm. Although it's not that avant-garde at the time I was like, I just, someone showed me like 12 tone music and I was like, Whoa, this is crazy. Like you could do that. It sounds so gnarly. So um, (laughs) I remember being shown 12 tone music for the first time. And my first thought was like, why in the hell would anyone do this? Like, why, no. why does anyone want to avoid, avoid the four chord? What's wrong with you people? <laughs> I, in my, like, in the rock band world, I was getting really into, like, punk rock and, mm. like, hardcore music. And, like, I love that for the energy of it. But um, I also loved it just because of the sort of fuck you element. Mm-hmm. To, and then I felt, I, I interpreted the 12-tone thing as the same kind of thing. Like, a sort of fuck you to, like, you know, traditional harmony and all that and well, I, I think that's why i got into it i'm sorry to interrupt you said you got to sort of experimental contemporary music or avant-garde music through jazz like you went uh, if i'm sort of understanding your lineage here like pretty heavily steeped in classic music and then through jazz you got sort of exposed which i guess doesn't surprise me jazz is a very experimental art form historically yeah. speaking and still today is one of the most like i mean i think there are arguments around that and i'm not steeped enough in it to know truly yeah. but my perception is that jazz is one of the art forms that takes the biggest risks and is willing to sort of do crazy stuff. And, you know, Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry, and like, there's a whole slew of people. I mean, of course there's, you know, Count Basie and all of that stuff is under the umbrella of jazz, but it doesn't shock me that you got there through, you got to contemporary music through that. Yeah. And I'm not going to try to speak with any authority on jazz either. Cause you know, my, but I think that's how I felt. And I think you're right. I think there's, that's some truth, a lot of truth to that. Um, and, but for, you know, for me at the time, I mean, I was so sheltered. Like, I have, you have to understand, like, until seventh grade, the only thing I listened to were, like, tapes my piano teacher gave me. Like, I really feel like... Well, I, my parents, how old are you, Rob? Remind yeah. me. I'm, I'm turning 40. So I, I just month, turned 41. So. And, like, my entire okay. musical upbringing was the BMG Music Club, where you <laughs> yeah. ordered, like, for one penny, you got 14 CDs. But yeah. that's when my mom was like, you know, they're sending us a bill every three weeks, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but those, when that stack of 10 CDs came yeah, that you didn't it. know, like, you picked yeah. two of them, and then they sent you, like, yeah. 12 surprise ones. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I learned about Weezer. That's how I learned about like a lot of music that I, you know, I, I got my first Mickey Mickey Hart CD through that or whatever, you know. Totally. Um, so anyway, just to say, like, I think we we grew up in sort of similar parallel trajectories in terms of how music yeah. got to us. Yeah, like my parents were not musicians um, at all, and they didn't even really listen to music in the house. Actually, what did they do? Mindset. Um, well, they, well, at this point, they're basically retired, but um, they had an evolution. My mom, they were both civil engineering, civil engineers to start. Hmm. And then uh, my mom uh, sort of went, um, she stopped working after my sister. I'm the oldest, so 
she stopped working after my sec- my sister was born after her second child. Okay. And then my dad sort of gradually transitioned from being a civil engineer to more of like he went into like a work for a real estate development company. Okay. And then he transitioned to actually working for like like um, investing like but like with real estate stuff. So now he kind of had the arc and now he kind of ended up doing more of like financey stuff. Mm, okay. um, but um, yeah, but they weren't I mean they liked music, but it just wasn't part of what they were doing, you know. Right. Um so I don't know how. I guess they just thought piano was something that one could do, so they threw me on it and, and it stuck. But really, I was only listening to that narrow thing. And I do really distinctly remember in seventh grade going out to get um, Nirvana, Nevermind, and that felt like whoa, that completely changed everything for me. You know, as listening to all this like piano music and then it's like you know that like stuff like grunge or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. So then I started trying to write, you know, notate and getting into classical stuff. And I think by the end of high school, it was like this real mix of, um, you know, ranging from trying to do like jazz stuff and in my, um, and then like writing down compositions in like this weird 12 tone way. And, um, yeah, I think that's kind of where things started to coalesce. Well, can I, can I ask you real quick again, sorry, sorry to interrupt again, Rob, but you, I feel like we jumped from like, you were, you were playing piano to now you're writing stuff. You're writing 12 tone stuff down. Like where, where can can we go back to where you decided like, wait, you can compose music. I didn't realize that was a thing. When did that happen? No. Okay. So that was gradual. So I, so I lied a bit when I said I didn't have (laughs) lessons because actually after I quit my classical lessons, about a year later, my mom hooked me up with this jazz piano teacher. Okay. And I, I went for a lesson with him. And the first lesson he sat me down and he said, all right, play something in C major. And I had this like panic attack, you know, like I did, I was like, what, like, what do you mean? Like, I, I can't play anything. Like, I, I don't, there's no music in front of me. I like, this is not right, right. computing. Right. And so that was, I think a moment where it occurred to me that like, I could just make stuff up. And it, it was, it took a while, I think, to get from like literally being frozen to like having the ability to like kind of just make stuff up. And I think that, and then, so that was one important step. The second important step was I started playing in this band and I really remember it starting in this very kind of cavalier way. It was just four friends of us, freshman year in high school. Three of them were thinking, were already playing music together. They needed a bass player. And I, without having touched the bass said, yeah, no problem. I can do that. It's easy. Um, Cause I figured like in like a lot of like pop songs, I was just thinking to myself, Oh yeah, they just play like some simple quarter notes. Or, like I didn't, I need three notes. Like, I need three notes. Yeah, yeah. A, a, I mean, a root, totally, a fourth and a fifth. <laughs> exactly. No offense to bass players. It's totally ignorant. But at my 14 year old self, I just very confidently said, yeah, no problem. I got it. So we had our first rehearsal and yeah, you could play, I could figure out the, the three notes I needed to play. Um, but then in a similar fashion during that rehearsal, I was like, let's write our own songs. And I, again, <laughs> in the way that only, like, a child can say it, I just was like, yeah, no problem, you can write a song, it's easy. Mm-hmm. No, all you gotta do is make up three notes and then some, make up some words on top of it and you're done. Yeah. And so that was the attitude with which we started writing songs together. Just to be clear, I, I don't, a, I don't, yeah, 40, I don't know that that's a terrible attitude, actually, just to no, approach and, things that you're afraid of, you know? I, I have to say, like, I've gone through, I think I've gone through an arc of, like, starting in that place of being like, yeah, whatever, it's easy right. to... You know, you go through school and you learn stuff and you start to feel like, oh, my God, I have to have all this technique. I have to to trying to, like, come out on the other side with a little bit more of that sense of just, like, whatever you like, just try to do it, you know. Well, and just, like, finding a place to start is the hardest thing to do. And just, like, rolling, starting the ball rolling 
oftentimes is the biggest hurdle to jump over. Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, so if, if pretending like you know what you're doing is a way to get the ball rolling, then do it, I say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As yeah, long as you're not going to hurt anybody, I, I don't think. No, true. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so those two things, the band and then trying to get into improvising, I think got me to feeling like I could write music. And mm. then, um, I don't know, you know, I grew up in Princeton, which you know well, and um, there's a lot of people in the air. Like, somehow I got hooked up with this guy who was had gone to, had got a, like a PhD in composition at Princeton, and I don't know where he taught, like, but somehow, I don't remember how it happened, but I, someone suggested, why don't you go study with him he'll teach you counterpoint and um i so i guess around sophomore year of high school i started like just getting like counterpoint lessons mm. him, which is in hindsight very strange because uh, i don't think that's typical and i think i was lucky that i just had someone in the area that um could do that so yeah. i mm. think that those three those three things like actually like working on counterpoint and like writing songs for the band and starting to get more comfortable improvising in like a jazz context. Mm -hmm. I think those three things really led me to feeling like I could write music and also starting to like think about writing as like, you know, notes on a page. Cause for the right. band, there were no, there's no notes. It's just like writing lyrics and chords or maybe coming up with riffs or whatever on the, on the guitar or the bass and just going into practice and working it out. You know, it wasn't written down that way, but, um, well, it's very similar to, not, it's very similar to like, I mean, just to be blunt, the way most of the world, learns and teaches music like every rock every almost like dave Grohl does probably i'm guessing does not hand out sheet music to the rest of the Foo yeah. fighters and neither does tom york like no, sure. like it's all i'm guessing i'm projecting here but and johnny greenwood might I don't maybe know. yeah maybe, maybe but it's like if you go to like um trinidad or you go to ghana or you go to you know uh parts of spain where basque drumming is a thing like it's not it's not written nobody, nobody's printing out sibelius PDFs yeah. like it's uh, it's Absolutely. all taught by road and that's the way bands I mean there's a big argument right now about music theory and the way people are being taught in universities and it, I think it's a legit argument to have but just to say that like you were learning by a rote style of teaching which is as legitimate an art form or style of, of learning as anything else it's just it's different absolutely totally and I think there's so much value to it and I think the fact that I tried to do that for a little bit played a big role in like just expanding my horizon and mm -hmm. expanding like how I could create music because yeah, I mean, I do think that, um, yeah, no, I totally agree. But th that cocktail of things is, I guess, what led me into writing things down. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started doing it. Um, although I might have tried earlier, but I for I've forgotten because I have found some old things from like, or even earlier, where I looked like I was trying to write something. Mm -hmm. Like, like little melodies, like on old manuscript. I must have been in middle school, but I, have, I literally don't remember that at all. I just found it. So the evidence exists. But I, it might, must not have had much of an impact. Well, so I gave it up as you were going through high school. Um, where along the line did you transition into being like, "This is fun," uh, you know, "This is cool." Like, I like taking lessons. I like doing this. To like, you know, your mom and dad are civil engineers. Your dad ends yeah, up yeah. in finance and real estate. Like, you know, my mom and my mom was a French and Spanish teacher, trilingual. My dad sold, you know, drove or sold big rig trucks, like eighteen wheelers, and sold soda his whole life. So, like. Yeah there was no discouragement of being a musician in my family. I mean, there was like, you're not going to make any money, that sort of thing, but nobody ever stopped me, but it wasn't yeah. like from day one, I was seeing people in the professional music arts, you know, as an example. Yeah. And so yeah. for, for you, for me, it was a little bit of a like, well, no one I know does this. Let me, except for my band director, let me ask her how to right. do it. How did you make that, that decision? That's a good point. I, I, you know, hindsight, I must've had some people that started to become role models. If you think about it that way. And because, you know, I, um, 
I think once I quit the piano teacher, that's sort of a divide, I think, between the early childhood and then what became, I think, my adult life. And I think as I got into high school, I think there were a couple key teachers that I think probably started to um, make it seem, like, give a model for what it could be like to be a musician, you know? And I, there's um, one person in particular who I never actually really studied composition with. Oh, I'd say two. This jazz piano teacher guy and this guy, his name's Paul Hoffreiter. Okay. Um, he was a teacher at, um, so I, I ended up at, at the, the high school I, I, I went to. And I don't know, somehow, uh, he, he's just a really inspirational person and um, just an incredible musician. I'd never met anyone like this who could, you know, just one of these people with this amazing facility who could sort of like improvise anything at the piano, whether it be like a, a fugue or like some contemporary thing. He could like write, he didn't have to use it, he could just like write. Like it was like, it was like he thought it, he wrote it. And it, but at the same time, he was just so down to earth, hmm. so caring and giving and like interested and just really, you could, I felt exuded this passion for not just music, but specifically composition and like the whole thing of, of like the craft of composition and whatnot. And I think that really just totally resonated with me and hmm. became like a kind of model. And then um, the other one, I guess, would probably be the piano teacher, this guy, Laurie Altman, who he was a, more of a jazz pianist, but he also composed and stuff. But, you know, he had a life in music and. I don't know um, what it was, but probably by like 14 or 15, I think the idea of being a musician was starting to form me. If I wasn't thinking about it consciously, it was starting to form because by the end of high school, I definitely was thinking of it consciously. I was mm. definitely thinking, I want to be a musician. I want to study this. Like, I want to do this. I don't know if I was conceiving of it like for the rest of my life, but I was definitely thinking of like, I, I want to do this. Like, there's, there's not, like, I'm not going to get another. I wasn't thinking I'm going to go try to become a doctor or get some other job. I was thinking I want to do music as much as I can. Yeah. I kept my, I, I kept, I'm trying to remember these, those moments, like when I was in college of like, when you, did I ever say I'm going to do this for the rest of my life? And I, I yeah. guess I don't, I guess the answer is yes, I did say that, but I think now in hindsight, what I was actually saying is I'm going to do this for the rest of today, for sure. Yeah, that's like, what I mean, yeah. I'm definitely yeah, yeah. committed to this for the rest of today. Yeah. And when I wake up yeah. tomorrow, if I don't feel that way again, I won't do it. And yeah, I just kept totally. waking up and being like, I'm committed to this to the end of the day. And it's like it's still at 41, I wake up and I'm like, I'm all in for so percussion at least until I go to bed tonight. <laughs> Great. You know, That's like I, yeah. maybe I don't know, but it, it's it's yeah. one I think that now, especially now in 2020, where everything is day to day, I'm like, that's right. At least until I end of business today, I am definitely still in so percussion. Mm -hmm. you, know? <laughs> I, you know, that is so great because I mean, I think that's. I mean, we could talk for a while about the last four months and what that's been, but I think yeah. one interesting thing that happened, I think probably for a lot of us and me, was just like you know. A, different relationship to your practice because so many external things were just just disappeared and now it's like okay what does it mean like what am i doing and what does it mean when i ha don't have all these other things that i was doing it well, for you know well for you though i mean i, I don't mean to get a sidetracked here but this is interesting because i think I, I want i do want to talk about this because and not in i mean we don't need to go down any particular sure sticky rabbit holes unless we want to but in, I, I do want to zoom out a little bit and just look at these four months and say like talk about how it's affected your practice because I think anybody who's listening to this whether you're a composer or you know somebody auditioning for orchestras or 
you know, or you're a civil engineer like your parents. I'm yeah. sure everybody over the last four months has had to reevaluate what their practice is and how what works and what doesn't anymore. I, I can certainly go into yeah. detail on my personal sort of the things that felt like yeah. a cold splash of water for me. But I'm curious, yeah. Rob, for you, what were those? What are the big picture things that you just like? Oh man, I had to retool this thing pretty right. quickly. You know, so I don't think I ended up having to retool much. I think though, because I'll, I'll get into it because there are a couple things. First of all. Um, the thing that had to change was the, the sort of orientation towards performances, right? Like, you know, I have like a series of, say, projects that we're working toward, like I had a premiere in August lined right. up. There's right. a couple of things that premieres are going to happen this fall. Those all get been delayed. Composer, composers well, have shows yeah. too. It's just when yeah, other people are playing right. shows. Like if other exactly, people have, yeah. don't have shows, yeah. then neither do you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like, so those are all gone. And that's really big to composers. Like you work yeah. really hard on a piece for a long time and like the premiere is really special. Although, I mean, I have a whole thing. Well, I think the and is the, the percentage of time that I'm on stage playing music during a soap percussion show is 100% of the time. The percentage yeah. of time on I'm on stage playing, say, Caroline Shaw's music is only about 15% of that time. So in terms right, of your right. involvement, like the bang for your buck on a concert stage, if that yeah. concert doesn't get played and you were only at you and it felt great to even just be 15% of that show. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's yeah, harder it to, it's harder to call that, yeah. claw that back. In a way it hurts, but then in another way it was fine because like nothing was canceled. It was postponed. I'm mm. still writing the pieces, you know? So like, it's just like deferred, but it's with this weird, like deferral of gratification. It's like, Oh, okay. So all those things I was expecting and looking forward to and working towards, they're now happening like over a year or more away. Right. And now, like now what's happened. And then also other, perform- you know, it's not premieres, but like other things that were going to happen, other concerts, other like things maybe I was going to go to and, or whatever, all gone. And so now everything becomes just almost like in a way interior. Like it immediately poses the question, like, who are you doing this for? Like, are you doing this for the performance? Are you doing this for the commission? Are you doing, or are you doing this for yourself in the sense of like, this is how you want to fill the days. I mean, so on the one hand, like, yeah, I do have these obligations because these projects were commissions, but like now they're not due for a really long time. So like, I don't necessarily have to do it. So, um, like right now, you know, but, um, but the thing that actually maybe it saved me or maybe it just maybe avoid the question is like very serendipitously um, another project emerged right around the same time as the pandemic, which was I'm working on a film score, mm-hmm. which I've never done before. But the way it works is that I'm only really creating mock-ups and demos. And so for the last like four months, I've essentially written like hours of music for this film mm-hmm. and like, but I'm doing it in my computer and sending demos back and forth with the director and we're, you know, getting the final like mock up and, but, it, but like, it doesn't rely on other people at this point. Yeah. So like yeah. in a way it was like, Oh, here I can now just pour myself into this and write. And, um, there's like a deadline and there's like feedback and like, I don't need anything but my computer and, you know, and myself. So, um, well, can I ask yeah, you? So can I, I ask you a little bit about? Uh, let's tr- try to be real objective about your 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 stuff you've written for that film score. And and I, I'm I'm asking you this not with it's it's not going to sound like a loaded question, but it yeah. or it's going to sound like a loaded question. But my intent is not as such. But given the extreme limitations you've been you that that has been put on you against your will, against all of our wills, yeah. with this yeah. lockdown and quarantine, do you feel how would you how would you judge your output? relative to the pre-limitation moment of your life what what's better and what's worse about the material I mean, you created 
It's, it's so, well, it's more than the moment of right now. It's it's more a function of working with this film project, which has been a totally different way of working than anything mm. I've done before. And actually, I think it's been a just a tremendous positive. Like I'm so grateful for this project. It's been an unbelievable like learning experience, and I think it's really opened me up creatively to working in different ways because. First of all, I have to work. I've had to work so much faster than I've ever had to work. Mm. I've I've had to essentially work with. It's like having two. You know, when you write your own piece as a composer, it's like you kind of decide everything. And obviously, there's a, a lot of dialogue with the with the musicians and mm-hmm. a collaboration about a lot a lot of respect just about like what works and what doesn't work. But not as often about like you know, do you think this should be longer or shorter? Do you think like this is really the right tone for this moment? Do you, you know, like these really more like. Um, like authorial choices like but working with a director it's had to be that way like you have to go really back and forth about like what the tone of something should be like should it be less or more of the instrumentation should it be longer or shorter faster or sort of like I, I there's like another composer in the room and i've had right, to be flexible right. and adjust and um that's been really good for me actually like i don't necessarily want to work this way always but like to have this other voice in my head and, and helping shape you know what i'm doing has been really good because um you know, I just think uh, it's more collaborative. It's like kind of breaks open my process a bit, which I think will help me when I go back to just doing it by myself. I guess well, it, it seems you know? clear. It's I mean, again, like I, I, I'm making a snap judgment here based on the way you're talking about it, but it seems clear to me that the director you're working with is someone who doesn't have like um, tyrannical say over what happens. No, but I'm curious. No. I've worked with a few. So has done a few tiny little snippets of film scores. We did a thing for yeah. uh, this show, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, M. Night Shyamalan movie called Split. Oh, cool. And uh, then we did some stuff for the Jinx, that thing about Robert uh, Durst. Um, oh, yeah, cool. And, the, and we've done some stuff, work, work with dancers too. And sometimes the, the critique that comes back towards you as the composer um, is different than a critique you might get, say, at like a from me at like a soci, if I were to come in and coach one of your pieces, something I might say to you in that room might be like, you know, Rob, I think the, like you have a real hocketing moment here that you want to have players one and three hocket really fast stuff. But player one is on vibraphone and player three is on, you know, a really tiny desk bell. Um, So maybe if you, if you maybe put them both on vibraphone and put them both on glockenspiel or some sort of middle ground, that hocket will come across. And then you and I, it's more of a, just like nuts and bolts, but with directors and films, I often feel like the the critique is less that and more of a, like, this needs to feel more inspirational. This needs to feel a little bit more depressing. We are leading towards a feeling (laughs) of, uh, of ecstatic spectacle. And like, those are things I'm like, wait a minute, those aren't in mute. Those aren't in like orchestration books. What the fuck does that mean? But isn't that awesome? Isn't that like liberating and like sure, yeah. kind of like I guess what I'm saying like, is yes to a degree, but if you haven't if I have if I'm not skilled, it's like learning by rote a little bit. Like if you're not skilled yeah. in that practice, it can feel like, wait a minute, you're asking me to lift that fifty pound weight and I've only right. got ten pound muscles. I haven't oh. used the you know Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I mean so this has been like a four month process. I've written more music in four months than I think I've ever written in my life. Mm. And I've probably come written between two and three hours of material and we've now whittled it down to about 70 minutes of stuff like that we're going to use yeah and even so there's about 40 cues in the film it's a feature-length film and each time i think i i got the first feedback back i had a moment where i probably want i felt i felt inside like i wanted to punch a hole in the wall <laughs> like, you know like what do you mean it's not inspirational enough this is great stuff like i, I cannot come up with something new this is impossible you know it's this like, needs uh, to be more 
exciting. Yeah. You're like, yeah, wow, like, you what have, does that mean? Yes. Like, you have no idea how cool that harmony change is 30 seconds in. Do like, you that know that I inverted that German augmenting six chord yeah. and put it on its head and exactly. referenced right. Rite of Spring here? You clearly don't. <laughs> right, but how amazing it is to have someone yeah. who doesn't give a shit about yeah. that and only cares about how it feels and how it's, like, serving the story. Because, like, ultimately that's what matters. And, you know, especially in the context of a film. Like, right, right. absolutely technical things matter totally zero. I mean, they matter in the extent of, like, can it be executed in a recording session if you're having a recording session? Like, that matters. Like, it needs to be playable and whatnot. Yeah. But, like, the fact that you did some cool counterpoint thing or some, like, interesting, like, subtle structure thing or, like, some special texture that, like, you find really, like, sophisticated and cool, that doesn't matter at all if it's not doing yeah. what it needs to do. You know, I, I find that liberating. Sorry, it's interesting that you bring that, that, that – I'm glad that you have that. It's inspiring to me that you have that feeling because um, not that I don't agree. I think on the spectrum, I'm, I'm a little bit more left or right of center in terms of the feelings about that because it, it, it can get – or at least I understand. why. Maybe I just haven't had super, super great experiences with it. But, um, but, but it is something that forces you out of your like mode of operating. And I do think it's important just to think about – like you have precon- preconceptions about the way – pacing works or flow works or yeah, you, you think yeah. your thing works a certain way i gotta say one of the most one of the film scores that blew my mind the most and i'm if anybody listens to this they may give me some shit and if you want to give me yeah. shit rob go for it is the uh, film score to mystic river okay i, I don't know it well enough to give you do you know shit. the film I mean, sounds, do you know the film not really it's with sean really. penn do you know who directed it no clint eastwood do you know who oh, wrote, wow, okay. do you know who wrote the music no clint eastwood oh no shit he wrote music? and it is three notes it's it's do re ti do. That's it the whole time. The whole very, time. very slowly and under any wow. part of and when you put that under some you know he shortly he lightly he reharmonizes it in some cases but yeah. it's like ba 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 like the whole time and when it when wow. that theme when when you remove the idea of like a light motif that is attached to an emotion or a person or a character yeah. or whatever or a tragedy like it has this weird it starts to take on it makes all of the events a little bit more banal and there's something very yeah. disturbing about that to me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yes. Do I think Clint Eastwood is an, is an amazing composer? No. But I do think right. in that moment he knew as a composer exactly what he wanted the music to feel like. And I do think yeah. that's a good time. It, it's a really – it's a good moment to look at like, oh, yeah, music does serve a purpose. It's not just subservient. Yeah. It can actually make the whole plot, the whole darkness that's happening in this movie mean something completely different, even in the hands of a composer like Clint Eastwood. And so if Clint Eastwood can do that, then certainly yeah. you as a composer, no matter what you feel your limitations are or the imposter syndrome you have, you can actually right. write music that has a huge effect on yeah. you know, every shot that every shot that the director made when there was no music, you know, like that right, you're right, recontextualizing right. the art that a director or, you know, a cinematographer yeah. has made. So anyway, that was a long winded thing just to say, like, no. it's an important thing to tackle. And I'm glad that for you in this current, I mean, for me in this pandemic, the thing that I feel that was serendipity, I don't know if it was serendipity, but when the lockdown happened, I realized really quickly that I had made like every decision in my life leading, at least in so percussion, my adult, my, my formative adult years when I graduated grad school, um, were based around traveling with. So I was out out of town half the year. Every piece of clothing I purchased, was it comfortable (laughs) on a plane? Is my suitcase going to last a long time? Is like my toothbrush, is this a good dop kit that I'm carrying? Like all of that shit. Um, uh, you know, and all of a sudden and commuting, 
you know, like what food I eat, where I eat, when I eat, you know, all of those things. All of a sudden now I'm home all day. Yeah. Like, I don't know how to do this. And the only yeah. thing I knew how to do was press record on my podcast, mic. And so from day one, I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to talk to people. And yeah. I got to say, it was something like that reaffirming that part of my like belief system, which is like, I got to be able to talk. To, I got to be able to talk to people. If I can't do that, I will not be able to right. do anything else. I did like almost 100 podcasts in the like five or six weeks of the lockdown. And yeah, then so see. You've done so many. But then, but then we had to take Sosi online and uh-huh. I realized in that, like the very first Sosi, I was like, Oh yeah, that's why I was doing all these podcasts. Cause now I have to run Sosi like this. And you and got if, it. And if I hadn't, well, I don't, I mean, I was better at it. I don't, yeah. I had been lifting yeah. that weight and building those yeah. muscles without realizing necessarily yeah. why, because now we're in this new world where if you can't figure out the pacing of a conversation like this, if you don't know when yeah. and how to interrupt somebody without feeling aggressive, um, yeah. If you can't read tone over this, then we're all yeah. fucked. You know, if we can't totally. figure out how to do that. And I realize yeah. it's like, oh, I can actually. I can't. And I realize that I can't actually manage those conversations in a healthy way when there's more than three or four people on the call. Yeah, and that took, that took me so many times of trying to do that, of failing miserably before I realized I'm just not going to do it. It's like getting in my car and somebody being like, sorry, you got to drive with an eye patch." You have five people in the car. And I'm like, whoa, no, that's that's not safe for anybody in the car. No, I just won't drive. Find somebody else, you know. Dude, that's so interesting. I have never thought about Zoom calls in the way of like trying to figure out how you judge tone, how you figure out the right way to interrupt. But that's a really good point because like do you feel like – I'm just thinking about it now for the first time. But do you feel like your brain hurts a little bit trying to like have a conversation? And precisely that point, like when is the right time to interject, jump in? Because like in real life – the signals are happening faster, like, and yeah. there's also more, but that, like, you know, like, so, like, I feel like, just like as in there's a little time lag in the sound, and, like, I need to, like, pause a little bit before I actually say something, because, like, I'm not sure you're going to hear it as fast as I would if we were face-to-face, and it's, like, I think so I'm constantly on just, like, like, a sort of alert of, like, when, when is the right, you know what I mean? Well, I think the, the thing that I feel like, and I just tried to demonstrate it there, is, like, I could sense that you were coming to the end of your thought, but I wasn't quite sure, sure. but I had to commit to knowing that. And if I didn't, if I just went, like, well, that, wait, go, go ahead, go ahead, yep. Wait, go ahead. Like, yeah, then that, that's, yeah. like, it's clear to everybody, especially on a pot, like, the thing is, is the first, I don't know, like, of the hundred or so that I did, it was only the last, like, five or six that I started filming, and uh-huh. on an audio-only podcast, it's really telling to people that I'm awkward and interrupting because there's a lot of apologies going on. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, you go ahead. Yeah, you yeah. go ahead. But what they don't see is me trying to figure out, like, I can tell when you look away from the camera that you're really thinking deeply about something. And I know when you finish up your thought, you look back at the camera. And that you're not the right. only person who does this, Rob. This is called human. Right. human I mean, when we think about things, we go, huh. And then when I'm like, yeah, you know, like, I think the less I start to feel confident about what I'm about to say, I start to zone back to you because I'm looking to you for help. And that's something that every, I do it, every human being does it. And it's something, it's a, it's like the one tiny thing I've picked up on after a hundred podcasts is like everybody, when they're basically done talking, looks back at me. It is like, it's like a tag team wrestling match, you know, but it's, that's not what you do in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, we're constantly like in real life. I can reach out and put my hand on your shoulder and be like, oh, but Rob like this, you know, yeah. and then and you'll know that what I'm anyway. It, but it's a skill set. And I think it's something that I see atrophying on Facebook mm-hmm. really bad. Mm-hmm. I am shocked at the conversations I see people I know having mm-hmm. on Facebook. 
You mean just like the comments kind of back and forth? Any of it. Any yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. There's just no, yeah. there's no attempt. There's not, I mean, I don't think you're able to necessarily, but there's no attempt at reading tone. There's, there's actually a perception that tone doesn't matter and that intent Which, yeah. doesn't matter. And I, to me, that sort of, whether we're talking about, you know, colonialist music theory or, you know, uh, who to vote for in November or whether Subway's footlong, $5 footlongs are worth their money. Like it doesn't matter what we're talking about. It ends up devolving into a, like you're a good person and you're a bad person really it's quick. so hard to navigate and that space. When I talk to the, the same people on zoom, that doesn't even enter the equation. And I'm just sort of like, what, I know. what is, there's something that there's something that everybody needs to be absolved of, which is the lizard brain in us that just cannot deal with the uncanny Valley of social media. And yeah, and I, I'm, for me, just sort of reassessing a little bit about my process. I think I'm realizing that I need to. I just need to care less about social media. <laughs> I need to invest like, in it less. Like, you mean like spend less time with it, or like interact with it in a way where you give less of a shit? Both, I think. Okay. Um, I okay. think I, I, to me, it's investing less in people's stuff. Like when right. I see somebody say something, even if I disagree with it vehemently yeah it's trying to be better at knowing where what power do i have in this conversation can i change anybody's mind have i ever changed anybody's mind on facebook and i actually think the answer is no um and so i'm just trying to get i'm trying better just to not engage with with stuff um and and the thing that's funny is like the number of times i offer for people to come on the podcast and talk about things that they want to talk on facebook they never do that's interesting. And yeah, I've so, always had a hard time. I've always had a hard time with it. I mean, I I think I'm just sort of fundamentally not really oriented well for like social media conversation. I mean, I use it. I'll post stuff occasionally, but mostly I stick to just like maybe saying something funny or maybe trying to say something like positive or um, maybe sh- you know sharing my own work, which mm-hmm. I do. And but like um, I can't. I really just can't do discussions and arguments because. I find that the way I think, for better or worse, is like it takes me a long time to sort of formulate my thoughts. I like to think about it from many different angles. Like mm-hmm. I'm not good at just saying something pithy and concise, and like you know. That, so that's why Twitter. It's terrible. Like I don't like. There are some people who are really good at it, and I'm like impressed. It's like a skill. Like it's kind of like a poetry of rhetoric or something, where it's just like they can in such short, short amount of words say something very insightful and. Blah blah blah. I can't do it. Like anything I want to say, it's gonna take. It's gonna be like a five, at least a five tweet thread or whatever. Well, there's also. I mean, there's there's like. I agree with you, but there's also like I would say there's probably five. Like if I was if I really had to think about it, there's probably about five people on the planet who I feel like use Twitter effectively and right, like and and thoughtfully. But there's also about five people on the planet who on over Memorial Day weekend can eat seventy two Nathan's hot dogs. In in ten minutes, that anyway. doesn't mean that we should all need to be like striving for that goal. You know, if yeah, everybody yeah. else is eating ten and throwing up violently, then maybe right. we should stop for two seconds and yeah, be like, let's true. just let's shut down the uh, the the, the let's, let's just stop demanding that we get our news it's from true. Twitter. You know, like it's, it's a hot dog eating contest, and there's a yeah, few people yeah, who yeah. can shove them all in there and not throw up for five minutes, and I'm just not one of them. You know, um, yeah. Well, let, I, I want to I want to pivot a little bit here because there is a piece of music that doesn't involve Twitter or social media that oh. kind of blew my mind of yours. And uh, again, I've only heard it 
a couple times through Doug, and it was a vibraphone solo that you wrote for Doug Thanks. Perkins. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I'm curious if you would be willing to talk about that and maybe a little bit of your, just to sort of round out the conversation here, a little bit maybe about what you're working on other than the film score. But can you sure. tell me a little bit about that vibe solo for Doug? Because I know Doug, and I know his hands aren't that fast, so I'm curious <laughs> if you... <laughs> I'm curious have, if you had Doug overdub everything really slowly and then just speed it up on the back end. But can you tell uh, me a, bit, a little bit about the process yeah, of working on that? Okay, so I will say at the end Sorry, of the day, Doug. he really – no, it's cool. He, and I, Anything I'm about to say, I've already said to him, so it's no problem. But at the end of the day, he play, he recorded that. There was no speeding up. He got <laughs> it. He did it. There were definitely overdubs in certain parts. Of there course, was, yeah. you know, as one does, you know, taking sections, blah, blah, blah. Sure, yeah. But he could, he could play the notes. And he's performed it. He's mm-hmm. performed it a couple times. Um but let me – so I think this whole thing started with a fundamental misunderstanding I had about him as a musician. Mm, that he was good? <laughs> so Yeah, right, <laughs> that he was any good. So I saw him – there was like five years ago, I think, probably or whatever. There was, I was at PASIC and there was this like rogue PASIC show in Indianapolis at some venue um, in like Fountain Square mm-hmm. and like Doug played and some other people played. And it was like a sort of like – small like you know cramped diy kind of space a lot of people there and doug got up there and he played xy by michael gordon and i found it to be an absolutely just like transcendent performance you know i was right there right next to him he was so focused so into it he just completely nailed it he had that down like it was just in his bones and i was just like so captivated by his ability to just command and like draw everyone in and just deliver this like really relentless virtuosic um piece that requires stamina and like a kind of intense focus to deliver he does over. he does play the snot out of that piece in particular it's, i mean just yeah, and just to be clear anybody who thinks i genuinely don't like or love or care about doug and think he's good you're out of your minds doug is amazing yeah. and he's one of my oh, bu- one of my buddies so anyway yeah. just a disclaimer so anyway so i just took away from that feeling like doug can do this and by this i meant take a difficult piece of music mm. that requires focus virtuosity stamina and he can own it and he can like just deliver that to an audience in a way that's going to just whoosh, suck you in. Agreed. So that was my starting point about Doug. And then, you know, as I often do, if I'm someone's asking me to write for like an individual, I like to think about like, I like to think about what are they good at? What are they known for? Blah, blah, blah. And then I think it, I, <laughs> this is the trickster in me. I think, Oh, it could be interesting to challenge that to say, try to like engage mm-hmm. a side of them, which maybe isn't as common, you know, in terms of what they present. Like to, so I guess with Doug, I was like, yeah, he, he does, he does X, Y, you know, he does a lot of like this more like multi-percussion or whatever. But like I thought, I'm going to, so I just thought like mallets, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I, I don't see him doing like four mallets, like stuff very often. You know, he does in like yeah. a chamber context, yeah. but it's not a solo jam as much. So, so there, and there lies the problem <laughs> um, because I, maybe there's a reason he doesn't do it as much. Sorry, Doug. No. Um, well, the ma- uh, mallets are something I, Dougie and I, Dougie, Doug, Doug and I have a very similar, uh, I've never mallets. I just have never understood why anybody writes for mallets. They're fucked up. They're <laughs> well, it's just like you have 88 little tiny drums and everybody's like, it's like a huge multiple setup, except every drum's this skinny. And yeah, you have two yeah. big blunt yeah. objects you're supposed to be very accurate it's with. It's so crazy, like, when you really think about it. Like, it's such an, like, a Rube Goldberg, like, impossible way to play an instrument. Like, <laughs> you strike it from, like, a foot above and you just, like, pray and you hit the right thing. Like, it's. <laughs> well, not it's everybody crazy. prays. I'm the one that prays to hit the right notes. Most people no, are pretty I know. Okay people, people figure it out. But yeah. just, like, obviously, like, playing a piano or a violin, it's just something that makes so much more sense. It's like, you're right well, there. You're, it's like. You're touching it. You have. You're, you're touching it. You're, you're in constant. You're touching it. The only part Why of Why my- would you. 
Yeah. The only part of yeah. my body that's touching the vibraphone is the foot. Yeah, and right. That's like, Good point. You know, that's a trick. It just is, you're not, it's just a very disorienting, you're not oriented right. where you should be. But anyway, so um, so I've kind of launched on that vibraphone piece thinking I'm going to write this really hard, long thing that's just like totally going to require this huge commitment, but it's going to be for four mallets. And, um, and so like, yeah, that was a bit of a struggle, like, because I think that I ended up writing things that weren't necessarily in his wheelhouse. Um, but on the other hand, I think that was cool. And I think like, whereas like, you know, he's not maybe going to play the harder, more virtuosic movements. Like that might not be the thing he plays for the rest of his life, but some of the movements I think he's going to hold on to and keep doing. But I think overall, like, I think I'm not, I don't want to speak for him, but I think it was part of the process that I did challenge him, I think became interesting. And as it works out, now that the piece is over, there are plenty of other people who can do the shredding mallets and they've taken to it and they love it. But, um, but that's how I got to the point of writing that type of a piece for Doug, you know, because of that experience and, and um, thinking I wanted to sort of do something that was maybe a little bit out of his comfort zone. Well, was there anything that um, you had to change or that we, with you and Doug that you went back and forth? Because, you know, what I know, again, just all the joking aside about Doug, one thing I do know about Doug and the way, the way So collaborates is like, here's what I'm here's what you wrote. And this, yeah. and I'm very, I feel now I'm more comfortable saying like, here's what you wrote. Don't change it. It's just really hard. And I suck at this. I, I suck yeah. at this. And you're just, I'll do the best I can. You're just going to have yeah. to trust me that 10 years from now, players aren't going to have a problem with this. And then there's the thing that's like, I think this is hard enough where you, you need to give players 10 years from now, just a hair of a break. If you want your music played yeah. a lot, you know? And again, yeah. it's like, and if your answer is no play it that way, that's what I want. And then the answer is like, okay, fine. You know, totally yeah. great. Um, and I think having those discussions along the way are, is always healthy. Um, for you, was there anything that you that you had, you did actually change because of, of oh, yeah. butting up against the vibraphone and, and its reality? Oh my gosh, a ton of things, so many things, and I, I, that's why I mean I love that part of the process. I'm definitely always looking to find the best solution, which is like the best way to express my ideas in the most like efficient technical way possible. And all, very rarely is there a situation where I feel like I say no, you have to keep it. Hmm. Um, you can't do it any other way. That that's really quite rare. I mean, maybe it happened a few times, but I always I, I like solving problems. And I almost always think that there's another way to do it, you know. Or like, if there's if the idea had say three had four components, and I was convinced that it had to have those four components to express the idea, um, I, I almost always discover that actually you only needed three, um, mm. or maybe you even only needed two. And it turns out if you just focus on those couple things, you could you could drop this other thing, and now it's possible in a way yeah. it wasn't possible before. And um, and Doug 100% was super helpful in that process, and there was a ton of back and forth on that. And um, yeah, I, I, in a way, maybe it's good that he he had to struggle with some of the movements because I think it forced us to get into the weeds of like, mm. no, this is hard to move your hands in this way. What if we change this thing, and then we didn't have to do that? And there were certain movements where there was more or less of that. Um, I mean, I don't know how well you know the piece. There's one movement where it's called CrossFit. It's only a couple minutes long, but it's got a bunch of um, like integrated into just like passive, like 16th note passage where it's mm-hmm. like hitting the side of the instrument, hitting a resonator front, um, you know, just making the scrapes on the, on the, on the, um, you know, the resonators, mm-hmm. like different like noise, noise sounds that right, are very right. seamlessly integrated into just like this kind of music, like 16th notes. For those, those who can't see the zoom, I'm just waving my hand like a crazy person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when composers demonstrate violence, like, yeah, you just do this. And then all the violinists are like, that's not, that's not what it's like. Yeah, this thing, like I, get, like, I understand, like, like, Paul Lansky does this a lot. Yeah. And I love, like, you're like, yes, that's pretty close. Yeah. But this is actually 
in some respects there's more mobility this way than there is with four mallets. Like yeah. like this right, 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 like four right. mallets is just yeah. like, oh my god, this is not it's, an yeah, evolution yeah. there's there's no evolutionary advantage to playing four mallet marimba. I'm just gonna put that really out in the not. world. When the world yeah. is collapsing in on itself and fires are engulfing well, us all, four mallet marimba yeah. players are gonna be the first to go, I think. <laughs> that's interesting, and this kind of gets into a little bit technical, maybe nerdy marimba technical land, but one thing I did learn in writing this piece for vibes is that like I think composers, when they're taught how to write for marimba in like orchestration books, it's just like four mallets. It's better than two because you can do more notes, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the end of the story. And every right. composer's like, "Yes, four mallets. Of course, I want four mallets." But then it's like there were some parts in, in the vibe movement piece where I was like, where Doug was like, "Well, if you just change this, you, you could almost do it in two. And I and I started to realize well, there could be a tremendous value to that because actually, when you have two, there's such greater fluidity. Yeah, it's like it, it, it can it can just flow better and like you know if you don't need the four like why you don't well it's it's something that it's something that we talk to composers a lot about because there is trying to think if there was a technique on the vibe or on the the violin where where there was a two bow technique all of a sudden Mm -hmm. now every violinist could bow two bows and get double you know like there's going to be something cool that comes from that on the other hand what it does do is limit some fluidity the violinist now doesn't have the independence of going up to the high strings and staying down at the low strings at the same time like it's a little bit more cumbersome and they're like drummers have two hands yeah so you're always gonna you're always gonna get better drumming with two hands yeah you're gonna get different drumming with four hands and there's gonna be awesome shit that you can't do with two that you can do with four but if what you're looking for is flow and energy and that's the top of the spectrum for you and like that's the number one priority that's the number one vitamin you're taking in this in this piece yeah yeah yeah, then two mallets if four is getting in your way or if you can't figure it out take two mallets away and just be okay with a few notes going by and see if the flow comes back because generally that's that's why four mallets often even with me too like i play worse with four mallets than i do with two i hit fewer right notes with two mallets than i do with four yeah but my flow sounds worse with four mallets than it does with two so yeah pick your poison and i feel like i'm you know i feel like i'm a fairly accomplished musician i have weaknesses that i could work on to get better but i think by and large that's a pretty good well so what i'm I'm, I'm curious really is there is there any music where flow and energy is not the most important um I don't know, but I'll bet there are composers who think that that's okay. Yeah, um, I mean, of but, course, no one can make universal statements like that. Um, but I think, for me, I can't think of music that I care about <laughs> in which the flow and energy isn't amazing. Like, maybe there's a lot of other stuff going on, but like mm-hmm. that, to me, is like the primary thing in yeah. a lot of ways. Well, I'm curious yeah. for you as a composer, you mentioned a little bit that that, that Doug, um, you know, he may not play the more virtuosic mo- movements. Um, I you, you said that, and I immediately had this tinge of guilt of like, oh man, I do that to Dan Truman and Paul Lansky too. Like, they wrote two steel drum solos for me that both of which, the middle movements, are really gorgeous and are something that, in the heat of the battle, like, you know, if somebody's like, Hey, I need you to play a piece of Dan Truman's tomorrow. Like I can spend 10 minutes, work that piece back up. But I, but it's like, it's like if somebody said, Hey, I know that you have three mountains that Dan Truman gave you to climb. Um, and I'd love for you to climb them tomorrow. One is Mount Everest. The other is K2. And then the third is like, 
a hill that will take you an hour and a half to hike, and you'll be a little, you'll be really exhausted when you get to the top. But yes. you can definitely do it to, by tomorrow. Of course, right. I'm going to pick the third hill. I'm not an insane person, you know. Obviously, yeah. But I think but o- that, no. over the long haul, though, what that means is that those two harder movements just get less exposure. And I, I have this ethical quandary as a musician: like, what is my responsibility? to the composer, but also just to music history. What, what is my responsibility to well, performers? All, I think, you know, this is ideally, and this will happen to every piece, but ideally it should go out into the world. It should start to gain a life of its own. It should start to have people who didn't commission it play it, mm. play it and have their own experience with it. And especially with a solo piece where there's multiple movements and it's kind of what you described, different levels, blah, blah, blah. What... I find, found is happening to economy of means and maybe to a certain extent this happens with other pieces of mind is that different people are gravitating to different movements. Okay, yes. The vast majority of people play the two easiest movements. Yes. But the other ones are not ignored. And like mm. there are a handful of people who have taken on the hardest movements and killed it, slayed it. And I, I wouldn't be, I'm not shy from texting Doug. Be like, for example, Cynthia Ye um, played like four movements from it, like on a Zoom concert a few weeks ago. And there's one movement she did, and I texted, I was like, Doug, I think Cynthia has you on this movie. You still own Corral, which is this like slow, pretty one, but, but Cynthia has you on CrossFit. And he was like, he was like, cool, yeah. He was like, you know, and that's fine. That's as I think it should be. You know, and like, do you know this guy, Kyle Flens? Yeah, yeah, um, of course. Kyle's associate student. Yeah, he's amazing. And like, so he played this one movement, Fast Notes, Long Tones, on the uh, Meathnorf Virtual Marathon. Mm-hmm. That's another killer hard movement. I have to be one of my favorites. I think it's one of the best in terms mm-hmm. of like, there's all these cool things going on. But like, it's fucking hard. And not a lot of people play it. But so, for whatever reason, Kyle figured it out and he can play the shit out of it. Awesome. He played it so smooth and it sounded so good. And like, you know, that's great. It worked for him. So my hope is that. Um, over time, you know, these harder ones won't die because certain people will, will want to scale that mountain. Or maybe for certain people, it won't be take two for them. You know, yeah. maybe it'll be like something a little bit less, <laughs> you know. Well, these but, are, um, I mean, these are things I think that as a composer, I want to warn, I don't, do you know who Jihei Jung is? Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Do, do, like I should have written this piece for Jihei. No, don't do that because no one will ever <laughs> be able to play it. <laughs> Because she's way yeah. too. I'm just kidding. Jihei is is, yeah. is one of my heroines in in the in the yeah. world. Yeah. But she's also oh, objectively speaking one of the best four mallet or mallet players on the on planet Earth. Um, oh, totally. I so, can't tell you how many times I've seen her play and just have my jaw drop. So if you're a composer, absolutely yeah. work with Jihei. Just ask her yeah. like, can anybody else do this? Put that in your process yeah. a lot if you're working yes, with Jihei. Yes, yes. Um, um, well, well, Rob, um, I'm gonna. I think we're coming down here. We've been talking now for uh, coming up on exactly an hour. And I'm always surprised yeah. at how quickly time flies. Um, and I can imagine yeah, the yeah. humidity level in your room rising. So let me um, get you out of there as quickly as I can here. Okay. Um, wh- what are you working on right now? I mean, you said you mentioned the film score. Um, but what yeah. are you working on right now that um, folks can maybe keep an eye out for that is, I mean, are you willing to talk about any sort of science project you sure. have growing in your fridge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, the immediate thing I'll plug is that I have an album coming out in, like, two weeks. Um, which is called Soul House, and it's a piece that um, it's about a 35-minute piece for a chamber quartet group, um, and uh, it's coming out on New Amsterdam Records August 7th. I'm really proud of it, and so that's something I'll plug. I don't know when this podcast will air, but if it's before or after, it'll be before check that. It out. Okay, um, so that's one. Um, as far as future projects, yeah, I've got um, the next thing I'm working on after the film thing is another percussion thing. Um, it's not the only thing I write, but I'm writing a percussion duo for this group called the Arts Duo. And, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Mari, Mari and uh, Garrett. Garrett, Arnie. yes. Yeah, Garrett Arnie. Yeah. 
And um, they want a big piece, like they want a long piece, and um, just trying to get my head around how I want to approach that. I mean, honestly, I've written a lot of perpetual music, but I, every time I find it very difficult to get started mm. because, first of all, there's so many choices. I still find it really weird to think about how to write for a percussion because I'm a pianist and like you get yourself into real trouble when you think like a pianist and you write for percussion. So like I have to always think about it. I have to slow it down to like a, a snail's pace to like really understand how the hands are moving. Otherwise, I end up writing things that are just impossible. Mm. But um, I'm excited about that piece. And I don't know. I, I think I'm, you know I've written enough percussion music to this point where I'm actually kind of approaching this piece. I think less. Maybe this. I hope this doesn't sound boring. And maybe it sounds old man or middle age, but um, less about like let me find um, some new territory and more about like let me take stock of all the approaches I've done. Like I've got this trio index possibility. I've got the vibes piece. I've got the, this piece um, down down baby, which is like a cello. I've got a marimba solo that I don't think you've heard, but um, is got some things going on and like all these different approaches. And I'm trying to think, well, what, what can I like maybe take from that? And that I think really works really well and like kind of consolidate and make it more of like this coherent statement, which I don't know, maybe that sounds boring, but to me it sounds really exciting actually. It doesn't sound, it it doesn't sound boring at all. I mean, do you steal from yourself? Do you steal things from other pieces? Absolutely. I steal things from myself all the time. And I, I see that as a really a positive part of the creative process. I think too much emphasis in school is on like making up new shit when I think actually if you look at almost any other discipline it's all about building a body of work <laughs> building up like you know yeah. right plagiarism like pla- up- plagiarism and appropriation are okay when they are stealing from yourself like pla- plagiarize and appropriate yeah. your own self first get good at that before you do it from anybody else and if you can do that yeah. then I think you probably will yeah. find that you don't have to steal from anybody else but just start start with yourself first it also starts to get more interesting, yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. and, you know, it can be wonderful when you discover something new, but like when you take something you've done before and you do it again in a different way and then again in a different way, the different iterations start to lead you into places you never would have arrived at before right. and I think gets more depth and it could be really cool. So, yeah, I'm kind of more self-consciously thinking about that with this duo, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the film score, I don't want to underplay it. It's a significant creative project for me. I'm really psyched about it, and I have no idea what's going to come out. It keeps getting delayed because all the they're going to premiere at film festivals, but they all get can't they all keep getting canceled. Right, right. But um, but it's basically done, and I'm super proud of it. And one day it'll come out, and I'll tell everyone about it. But um, but Are yeah, you so allowed to, you're not allowed to say what film it was for. I, th- I can say what it's for. It's um, it's a documentary on Charlie Chaplin. Oh, cool. Um, okay. Yeah, and it's um, I don't think they have a title yet, but it's it's a really cool movie. It kind of goes into depth onto his his upbringing, different aspects of his life, you know, both positive and negative. The mm. whole arc of his story, which is unbelievable story. I mean, he came from just like like um, he was or- you know, an orphan, basically living in slums and begging. To, to like the most famous person on the planet to being exiled from the United States because he was a suspected communist, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, it's just like such an incredible story that spans like these key points in like the 20th century history. And that film, a there's a thinker. film of him. Is it the dictator or something like that? Yeah. Well, the great dictator, the great dictator. That one yeah. is striking. I mean, especially, I mean, I remember that came yeah. out just prior to the 2016 elections or became more like it was getting circulated a lot. Yeah, um, yeah, or after the election or whatever, and going back and watching that every once in a while, I was like, "Oh man, <laughs> that is re- yeah, oddly it, relevant to today." Yeah, totally. Um, so, so that's been really cool. And the cool thing about that project is they sought me out for my music. It's not mm. at all feeling like um, I have to change who I am or anything. But they awesome. came to me and like 
it's crazy. Like they listened, they were like, send us every single recorded piece you have that you've ever done. And we're going to pour, and they poured through it and they like took some of it to use for some of the things and some of it was starting off points for other things. But like, it really felt like it was coming from my, my idiom, so to speak. And um, so I feel, yeah, I feel like that's definitely part of, it's a serious creative project, but that's, um, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome, yeah. man. Well, where where um where can folks find out about where where is your website? Where can folks find out more specifically Robert, about you? RobertConstein.com. That's H-O-N-S-T-I-N. Um, S-T-E-I-N, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Robert and it's Constantine. funny, you I have an I have an MP3 of me saying my name because sometimes I get asked it, so I can just text it out and it's like, here you go. Robert you know, like Einstein. someone Yeah. I like, think it's uh, good. Robert, it's yeah. good. I mean with anyway, I I, I have a But I don't care. I don't care. You can, people call me Steen Stein. The one that only one that pisses me off is there's. First, I don't understand it, but something that happens is people will call me Hornstein, like Robert Hornstein. I'm just like, where do you get? Like, it doesn't even like. Like, I totally get. Like, you can't figure out Steen or Stein. Sure, whatever. But like Horn, like I get Quinlan. No like I get Quinlan sometimes, and yeah, and then I got Kien. Like somebody looks at me, I'm like, you think I'm French? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like, I'm wearing a I mean, C on my hat. Say, it's for Cleveland. There's I no Cleveland think, France. Still, yeah, right. <laughs> so people just look at names and like the, the series of letters don't make sense to them, and the whole thing just becomes like a scramble. And it's yeah. just like there's like Whoa. it's like did you yeah. listen to the John Travolta thing where he tried to announce um, uh, what was her name um, from Wicked? Um, oh, Adele. Yeah, uh, right, 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 right. Adina Menzel, and yeah, he Adina, announced her Adele, yeah. Adele Kazim. <laughs> So anyway, Rob, on yeah, that note, buddy, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate catching up. Um, I, I have, you know, my policy is I have an open door policy. If you have any, when your project, uh, when your record comes out on August 7th or your movie comes out, um, yeah. I would love to, to connect with you and talk more about Absolutely. it. And, and, you know, we, when we emerge, if we emerge from the other side of this pandemic ever, um, we, we can do this in person. But uh, until then, yes. Rob, I really, really appreciate your time. And, and any final words before we wrap up? No, this is great. I've, I admire your podcast. I mean, it's I, I, I get obsessive with them, and there was a period where I listened to almost every single one of yours that you did, up to like somewhere I don't remember. But then I totally lost track of the the, the coronavirus time. It's because, it's okay. <laughs> I'm not. But, but I, I'm not so sure that I would recommend. I think started every one of those podcasts out with "Do not hold me to anything." I we're all figuring this out <laughs> well, together. Whatever we say during this Corona cast is only hold us liable yeah. during that day. I mean, and so there's a lot of crazy shit in there. I um, can't. It's my um, my podcast time has gone away. I can't listen to them anymore because I used to listen to them commuting and like walking around like in the city or whatnot. Yeah, me but too. now I have two kids, a five and a three and a five year old, and we have a babysitter now. We got one again, but for the first twelve weeks, it was just a total disaster of like no childcare and like my wife and I trading off working. It was just like, I, I don't, I can't listen. I don't listen to them anymore. That's but fine. Well, day, it might, mine are not safe. Mine are not safe for, for children's ears. So I appreciate Maybe keep them away from it. There's a few F bombs. Oh, cool. I don't want to get them in trouble, but well, oh, Rob, okay, yeah, um, yeah. you stay safe, stay healthy. And it was an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to catching up to you, uh, catching up with you again soon. Okay, buddy. Me too. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, Rob. Bye. Thank you. 
Okay, this podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas, run by Todd Meehan. Amazing percussion videos, education, and hilarity ensues when you go to liquiddrum.com. Also, DunleavyPans.com down in Waco, uh, Waco, Texas, down near Philadelphia. Kyle uh, Dunleavy builds uh, and tunes all of the steel drums that I teach and play on, uh, just not only at Princeton, but at NYU and in so percussion as well. D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pans.com. Also, if you've ever wondered where the steel drum comes from, what role it plays in society and Caribbean societies, just you want to learn more about the steel band, go to paninmotion.com. Uh, four of my friends from Brooklyn run that organization. Kendall, Trisha, Jerry, and Orisha. Check them out. And also, if you want steel pan-related merch, uh, hats, shirts, go to Mango Chow on Facebook. Aliandre uh, over there at Mango Chow makes amazing merch that is steel drum sort of uh, related. Check them out. Amazing stuff. And support uh, the advocacy of the steel pan, especially in Brooklyn. All right. Hope you enjoy that conversation. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.